You're listening to the Plane Talking UK podcast, the UK-based podcast written by a passenger for anyone. And here are your hosts, Carl Stebbings and Matt Smith. So, Plane Talking UK are going to have their 100th episode. Well, just to surprise them, we thought we'd sneak over and jump into this Vulcan ahead of them. And we did. And we got into the Bombay. So Steve and I got a really fast plane and came all the way, all the way up from Australia. Quite a flight. And we got here ahead of the boys. It took a couple of helicopters and everything. And I really got to say, I'm pretty tired. In fact, Steve's so knackered, he's fallen asleep. So we're here in this Bombay, but we're going to surprise the guys. And we know they're about to start, so we're going to leap out and surprise them and say, Dudes, happy 100th. Woo, this is fantastic. So now... Let's see, how do I get out of a Bombay of a Vulcan? The mechanism doesn't seem to want to work. Oh no. Come on. It's not Steve, wake up. I need your help. Steve. Damn it. I think we're trapped. It's not working. Oh, guys. Guys. Damn it! It's not working! We're trapped in here! Oh, this is gonna backfire. Just when we're gonna surprise them. It's such a big one. 100 episodes. That's so cool. Oh well. We'll keep trying to find the, uh... You know... I don't think I'm gonna get out of here in a hurry. I might as well catch up on some sleep, just like Steve. Oh well. Better luck next time. And welcome to episode number 100 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carl Stebbings and joining me in what is one of the most <laughs> iconic aircraft in the world is Matt Smith. <laughs> this is the weirdest location we've ever been in our lives. <laughs> oh, I tell you, this this is uh, an absolute treat for us. Oh, we have been royally spoiled yeah, we have. by the City of Norwich Aviation Museum here in uh, Norwich, just yeah. outside the uh, main international airport of Norwich. Mm. And uh, like I said, me and Matt are actually on the, uh, or inside the Vulcan XM612. Well, and for very complicated reasons, we'll give you a little tour. Um, we're going to release some videos after we finish this yeah. of uh, of how it looks and stuff, because there's not a great deal of amount of space in here. So no, we'll, it's, we'll it's show cozy. you what it looks like afterwards. <laughs> I think is the best thing to do. But as you say, it's uh, uh, it, it's well, as I say, our studio has literally hit the road. It's just yeah. oh, it's just yeah. bizarre, isn't it? So we've got um, we've got we've got quite a few people in the chat room. Uh, David uh, David's in the chat room. Ray Davis over in Australia. Uh, Glenn. And uh, we've got uh, Nick, uh, Captain Nick's in the chat room. Captain <laughs> Al's in the chat room. Masha uh, over there in the Netherlands yeah, is in the chat room. Uh, thanks for joining us all this morning. And uh, yeah, Captain Al has uh, just told us that the sound and audio is uh, the vision. All the visuals are all good. Excellent. So that's well, that's cool. a relief seeing us. Seeing us, we've already started. Yeah, so, I don't uh, know what we. I don't know what we do if something goes wrong. I, I know. Be I honest, know. Matt, Matt's yeah. had a, Matt, Matt has been <laughs> in, in complete tech overload this yeah, morning, setting up the, all the equipment yeah. for today's show. Oh, um, I, I knew it was going to be hard work. I didn't. I had no idea it was going to be this much hard work. Oh. But anyway, it's, let, all I can say is that the, the staff here at the museum have been nothing fantastic. But fantastic. Yeah. Brilliant. They've been so generous with their time. And tea and coffee. We have had tea and coffee by the by the museum. It's been absolutely really really. Fantastic! These Absolutely. guys have looked after us. They have. Um, but yes. where, look at where we're sitting, Matt. We are sitting on, uh, you know, in somewhere where a lot of people, 
I probably haven't never seen them before. No, you know, no you know, absolutely. Um, um, but uh, oh, just, I'm just looking at the other shot. Innocent families are just wandering around airplanes, having no idea what's going on. Ah, uh, they're probably <laughs> innocent probably... families wandering around, wondering what we're doing yeah, here. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I'm wondering what we're doing here. I know. <laughs> but uh, like I said, we we will publish a video later of will, um, yeah. uh, yeah. where so we are the sitting behind the scenes, behind the scenes video. Um, but literally in front of where I'm sitting here now are are the uh, captain. And uh, yeah. first officer's seat yeah. on the on on the Vulcan in Absolutely front of us there, amazing. and uh, like I said, behind us here, navigator's area here with a desk, and obviously you can probably see if Matt puts his camera on, he'll uh, he's got oh, all okay. his all his governs behind him. Yes, I have. Yes, yes. All the, uh, <laughs> yeah, all you the PC see the and everything. The towers all hidden away. Let, let's just say this: the, the Vulcan is is pr is pretty much coming to the 21st century. I think yeah, with all this uh, yes. equipment. Had, had a couple here. of minor upgrades since we arrived, but they're only temporary. I promise. Nothing. Oh, we've got uh, another one in the chat room jenny yeah. uh, jenny's just joined us in the chat oh, room oh, in uh, in yeah. rome over in italy yeah, in rome so hello to oh, she you said, in rome. she says she's actually uh, she's actually coming into norwich uh, in a couple of days time yeah, jenny's coming over yeah. to the uk soon yeah, so uh, she's coming back to the uk soon yeah um, Fantastic, and yeah, this the uh, oh, Doctor Steph, also Doctor Steph wow. over in the oh, US, from the, Geeks. Yeah, from yeah, the yeah. APG crew. Doctor mm. Steph's in the chat room, so hello to you, Doctor Steph. Thanks for joining us this morning. It's probably very, very early for yeah, for absolutely. Steph, or very late. I don't know what the time yeah, is in the US. The I don't know. Sure. Yeah. So no, it, it is a it is a truly epic. Uh, it's five a.m. It's five a.m. It's five a.m. It's morning. Anyway, enough of this. Enough I of this. We, we need to kick on. off the show because yeah. we have got a very important interview. We're going to interview uh, a chap here uh, who uh, who knows his stuff about the Vulcan. So, so we're going to yeah. interview him later. And yep. uh, we've also got lots of listener feedback there for our hundredth show, we which have. has been sent in to us by you guys, the listeners. Yeah. Uh, which will be awesome to listen yep. to. Um, but we have got our usual rundown of the aviation news yeah, don't from forget around Pilot the world. Oh, well. we, oh yeah. yes, sorry, we have yep. got a segment as well. Yeah. Believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, oh, we I actually know. have a running order today. That's how that's how uh, carried away we've got. We've actually got a running order as to, as, as to which we're going. So we're aiming to do the interview around about 11 o'clock if you yeah. are watching live we, yeah, on to, YouTube. Uh, closely followed then, um, uh, so just before that, we're going to play out Pilot Pip's segment. segment. Yeah, we have had a, pick, uh, segment, a pair segment yes. from Pilot Pip, we have. Uh, which is pretty cool. So anyway, I'm waffling. I'm sorry. I'm I a know, bit nervous. We need to crack on. So we're <laughs> going to start the show then as we do each week, not quite from a Vulcan, but no, we're going to start no. the show as we do each week uh, with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. So if you're ready, Matt. Yes, let's do this. Let's go. So kicking off this week's first news story on the Business Traveller site and the headline BA launches new iPad app. So British Airways has launched a new iPad version of its mobile travel app with extra features including 3D globe for flight searches. Users can create a viewing plan for the in-flight entertainment on their flight by dragging and dropping for the menu of available TV shows, movies and music. The interactive 3D globe allows travellers to search uh, and book flights and boarding passes can be downloaded with a barcode produced in each of the iPad's four corners. Uh, and you can also use this at the gate as well, which is awesome. Uh, commenting on the launch of the new iPad app, uh, Sarah Dunham, BA's Head of Marketing, Retail and Direct Channel, said that their customers are always on the move and are often pressed for time, so designing an app for iPad users made perfect sense. Now they can use the same functions that appear on our smartphone apps with some new extra features on a wider and even more user-friendly screen. 
The new app is the latest move to take the traveling experience easier, or making it easier and smoother for BA customers. The BA recently updated its travel app to include a reward flight finder feature and introduced a new mobile boarding scanners at Heathrow Terminal 3 and Terminal 5 for use with its Apple Watch app as well. This is quite good, Matt. We're finding now that more and more airlines are moving to using mobile apps. Mm. I know Delta uh, have an app for their uh, for their for, you know, for their flights, and also Virgin have an app for theirs, which I used as well yeah. a few weeks ago or a week ago. And uh, more and more airlines now are using mobile phone apps for, uh, yeah, for customers. Well, well, I love the idea because a lot of them they have the Q, the QR code, don't they, built into it? So you actually have your boarding pass with you which is oh it's just brilliant it's absolutely brilliant it's 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 clearly the way forward um especially with the likes of of Ryanair um yeah. not enabling you to sort of print your boarding pass until sort of like the week beforehand so you've got to find a way essentially of uh, getting what you need uh, you know your boarding pass with you when, when you take off so it's uh, it's at least you can do it while you're you're out there using your phone so. yeah i think more and more airlines are going to are going to start bringing out their own apps yeah. i definitely yeah. think this is going to be a, a worldwide thing even yeah. the smaller airlines yeah. you know even Ryanair have their own app and easyJet have they their do. own app yeah. so uh, yeah, you know it's absolutely. only only a start of big things to come. Yes. Actually, on whilst we mentioned the, the Ill, ill-fainted word that is Ryanair, it wouldn't be uh, story two wouldn't be the same if it wasn't one of those. So, so our next uh, story our is Our next story is, <laughs> this is on the metro.co.uk uh, For anyone in London, obviously you get free one of those in the, uh, on, on the tube, and the headline is, oops Ryanair emails customers asking them to review flights they haven't yet taken, which is a pretty typical really. There's a lovely picture of a Ryanair plane, but you don't need to see that um, have you been um, have you been left scratching your head this morning wondering why you've been sent an email from Ryanair to review a flight you haven't yet taken well it appears you are not the only one people have been taking to Twitter trying to find out what's going on the email entitled give your feedback appears appeared in inboxes overnight asking customers to take part in a post trip survey the email which Ryanair have admitted was legitimate uh, though was sent in error it came from the address marketing at RyanairMail.co.uk and included all the additional widgets you would expect to see, such as holiday promotions and active Twitter and Facebook links. The survey, however, is either for a flight a customer hasn't taken, leading them to believe that they booked for the wrong dates and missed their flights, or for one, uh, or, or for one that they took a very, very long time ago. Understandably, this is called mass confusion on social media. A Ryanair spokesman said that the email was not malicious. She said uh, that the post-flight survey email we did send, uh, it, it was sent in error to customers who flew uh, previously, and we apologise for any inconvenience caused. I mean, it's obviously just a mail shot that's gone wrong, hasn't it? In, yeah, in yeah. fairness to Ryanair. Um, a but, mi- minor uh, technical glitch from uh, from Ryanair, I think, this one. Yeah, well, yeah. yes, yeah. Uh, as, as technical glitches, glitches go, though, it's not one to get overly excited about. I mean, I mean to be fair, Matt, you did send me an email this morning. Uh, oh, there's no need to bring that up, is there? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how rude are you? I yes, know, sorry. I, I sent, I sent, because uh, we were very lucky, as I say, we got lots of feedback uh, that came in. Uh, some of it, unfortunately, didn't arrive till very late last night or stroke this morning. Yeah. Uh, so I was up at sort of five o'clock this morning, busy uh, f- frantically editing it. But I think you were up about the same time as I was. Yeah, I was. I was up early this morning, (laughs) worrying about the show. Absolutely. So moving on to our next uh, next story (laughs) uh, on the Travel Weekly site and the headline: Pilots' Union demands lasers to be classified as offensive 
explosive weapons. Oh, really? uh, this story uh, uh, broke a few days ago, and the pilots' union, Balpa, has called for lasers to be classified as offensive weapons after a Virgin Atlantic flight was forced to return to Heathrow oh, this was after terrible, an attack. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the union has reported that aircraft are being attacked at an alarming rate and that lasers of increasing strength are being used. Jim McAlsen and the general secretary of Balpa told the Times that classifying lasers as offensive weapons would give the police more powers of arrest. A law was passed in 2010 outlawing the shining of lights into an aircraft to dazzle or distract pilots, but there have been very few prosecutions. Modern lasers have the power to blind and certainly to act as a huge distraction and to dazzle pilots during the critical phases of flight, said McColson. It's an incredibly dangerous thing to do. Uh, shining a laser at an aircraft puts that aircraft and its crew and all the passengers on board at incredibly uh, unnecessary risk. On Sunday, which is last week, a Virgin Atlantic flight to New York turned back uh, as a precaution after one of their pilots on board uh, reported a medical issue caused by a laser attack shortly after takeoff. The Civil Aviation Authority says that there have been 9,000 laser dazzling incidents since January 2009 involving passenger and military jets. Police helicopters and air ambulances as well. Are these people mad? I, know, I mean, you know. Uh, Heathrow Airport has topped the list of airports where attacks have been reported with 48 followed by Birmingham with 32, Leeds Bradford with 24 and Manchester Airport with 23. You know, this is a story now, Matt, that we've been you know covering this now for mm. weeks and weeks and yeah. weeks and since last year really. Yeah. And you know, these in attacks are increasing and there needs to be uh, you know, a, a, a bigger fines, and I think you know a longer jail term for for you know these people who who yeah. are doing this with these lasers because yeah. you know at some point it's going to either something seriously injure happen, a yeah, pilot, you absolutely. know, or or something worse. So these this needs to be addressed. I mean, I, I was I was chatting to some of my friends uh, actually, as I say, because obviously the story made major news, didn't it? Because basically, because a Virgin Atlantic flight was turned around and had to go home. Um, one of the things that's that um, has been a bit of an issue because we I've been been chatting about it to various friends and that and they thought well, is it a bit of a major overreaction but the trouble is, is you don't really know do you if you are literally being blinded um, by, by a laser, by a laser I mean, yeah. you don't know what damage has possibly been done no. and you, you could argue especially if the pilot is then complaining that he's he's got immediate headaches and things like that I mean you, you can't just ignore something like that yeah you know I mean it, the, the, that Virgin flight that was affected by the laser last week there was actually an ATC uh, recording that was released and they actually played it on uh, the news yeah. media stations and uh, you actually heard the pilot make the um, pan 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 call yeah. and, and uh, turn around and obviously burn fuel off and land uh, yeah. straight back at yeah. the airport so but as you say it's, it's one of those things isn't it you do worry that they aren't going to do anything about it until it's too late you well, Glenn Towler in mm -hmm. the chat room, uh, Glenn Towler in the chat room on YouTube has uh, said that they should bring back hanging. Right. Okay. What for? For, for laser. Incident, for said right. instance. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. I, I can understand why why that's where he's gone with that. Um, and good morning to Mark Harvey as well, who's uh, who's joined us in the chat oh, room. Fantastic. The chat room is filling up rather nicely. Really good. Matt. Actually, we've got a re really impressive. Crowd. I, I, I can't believe that we're where we are. Essentially, it's this very bizarre. large field, <laughs> and we're successfully broadcasting to, broadcasting to oh, YouTube. No. It's absolutely crazy. Oh, dear. 
It's, it's bizarre. It's uh, the, Norwich has recently. I'm going to bore you with some technical stuff now, but Norwich has recently just joined the world of 4G here, and so we're actually, ironically, the connection here in the middle of this field is actually far better than my. Well, I think your and my broadband connections combined, yeah, um, isn't it? I know. Yeah. I know. It's terrible. <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. So next story. Yes, sorry. The next story is um. on the. Uh, well, I'm not really sure, but it's the CN Traveller website, and the headline is why the airline boarding process is all wrong. Oh, yeah, I can totally agree with this. Really? Mm. Okay, you've just come back from holiday, so you're probably better to to comment on. There is uh, an art to boarding a plane efficiently, but that's not always best for business. Frustrated by how long it takes to board a plane? Don't blame the airlines. Research is clear about how to speed up the boarding process and airlines could be it could implement new procedures to save time passengers probably wouldn't like the changes however so most airlines stick with what they have consider the most obvious source of boarding delays overhead bins putting your bags is up is more of the problem than taking your seat says uh, says the director of Northwestern University's transportation center remove half the carry-ons the easiest fix would be to charge for them what to actually take your carry-ons on board. No, to put them underneath to, oh, to right. get rid of them altogether. Right, okay. And everyone would uh, get to their seats much, much faster. That's what they're saying, though, is actually mm. um, the delay is actually people putting stuff in the overhead bins. So yeah. if you charge them to put it in the overhead bin, they're more likely to check it, to put it underneath. Therefore, you aren't going to get the delay of people standing, standing in the aisles, up, standing in the wild yeah, getting, getting take- away. Absolutely. Easy boarding, uh, sorry, early boarding is another problem. Many airlines use systems that could be speedy, but before they start uh, with their sig- their scientifically proven approaches, their invite tops uh, customers aboard. So, sorry, their invite top customers <laughs> aboard. Uh, since frequent flyers often sit in the first rows of the coach, they can slow everyone seated behind them. Oh, yeah. uh, but airlines don't want to stop early boarding passengers because they like it. Our top tier customers spend a lot of money to support our business, says American Airlines Tim Malahanan. So yes, in a perfect world, um, how would airlines get passengers to board faster? Uh, They recommend a two-pronged approach. Uh, First airlines should board from the back and move forward, but instead of calling each row, they should skip one row each time, so fewer passengers compete for the overhead bin space. Second, he says, the airlines could uh, should call uh, window seats uh, first then middles then aisles you want to load from the back to front outside uh, to in that might be too complicated to implement so they also suggest completely random boarding a free-for-all similar to southwest's approach and the slowest system is likely back to front since it concentrates boarding passengers in one area with many pa- with many travelers fighting over the same bins it's uh, it's a biz- bizarre story really isn't it it's um i know uh, i've witnessed this firsthand in the yeah. last in the last week when we flew back from vegas and uh you know when when you're you know when you're boarding an aircraft especially the size of kind of ryanair stuff the 737 am uh, 800 i was on a 900 yeah. which is a slightly stretched version than the ones that you've been on with ryanair and you know you get those people who walk on they they take probably you know a good two minutes to put their bags in the overhead bins yeah and you're standing there and you're like god yeah, you know on. i just yeah. want to sit down but and of course what they you don't realize is you've got the the queue all the way up the stairs and everything haven't you 
um, you know, because because you're sort of like standing on on the tarmac waiting to go up and, and all sorts. It's just it's uh, I don't know how you solve it, as you say. Maybe that is the answer. Actually, don't allow people to take anything inside at all. But then of course you can't do that because you know if you've got sort of medics medicine or things like that, you you know. Well, Virgin uh, Virgin Delta have got uh, a really good idea. I found when we boarded the flight with Delta, uh, they board. By zone, right. so zones okay. A, B, and C. So right. obviously um, C being right at the back end of the yeah. aircraft, B, and then and then yeah. uh, A. Uh, so obviously they board uh, everyone, you know, t- at the back first, yeah. and then the centre, and then mm. the front seat. So um, it, and was it quick? I mean, it was. Yeah, it was a lot, lot quicker. You yeah. know, when you get that case where you just we all cram on, you all yeah. run on together at the same yeah. time, and you're, you're virtually having a fight to get on the aircraft and yeah. sit down. Uh, that's when things take too long. Yeah, absolutely, that is true. That is true. Okay, on to the next story. So, on to the next story then. This is on uh, Flight Global site, this one. And the uh, headline, once my tablet loads up, here we go, <laughs> is Singapore uh, OK, OK Airways uh, commits to 2737s. What a okay, great name. OK Airways. OK Airways. So yes. China's... Uh, the trouble is, I, I sort of read that a little bit and think, it's just like, you know, what is your airline like? Mm, it's OK. It's OK. Yeah, my airline's OK. <laughs> no, it is OK, really. Uh, so China, this is owned by China, um, the airline OK is committed to an order of up to 20 Boeing 737s in a deal worth $1.3 billion wow. at this Crazy prices. money. The agreement comprises of uh, firm orders for 12 aircraft comprising of 8 737 MAX 8s, ma- uh, 3 MAX 3s, nines and one seven three seven nine hundred ER as well as eight other options. OK Airways based in Beijing okay already Airways. operates <laughs> already <laughs> Sorry, operates amusing me. I know. <laughs> uh, already operates eighteen seven three sevens on their fleet list uh, according to Flight Global's analyzer. Uh, the new order will make the airline the first seven three seven MAX nine customer in China. OK Airways Chairman Wang Shushen says the aircraft will be a great asset to support OK Airways development. He says the carrier has six operating bases including its main one in Tianjin but indicates the airline is aiming to increase its, uh, this to eight from 2020 including a station in Beijing. Uh, we're going to be become the best privately owned airline in China says Wang. All eight options are for the MAX 8 says the airframer and uh, OK already has six MAX 8s on order as well and a commitment uh, once firm will make its overall MAX fleet to 17 of the jets. Boeing's MAX family is exclusively powered by the CFM International Leap 1B engine. Um, which is that's good, another good news for Boeing then. Another huge order of aircraft yeah. for Boeing and all the way to China yeah, as well. Yeah, but to be fair, we do see it where they sort of switch backwards and forwards, isn't it? Because we'll read that, that story out and then the Bo- but where Boeing are doing all right and then Airbus will get a massive order as well. So I wouldn't feel too sorry for, for the competitors. I think they'll be all right. <laughs> I just had another uh, another uh, channel, another listener in the chat room. Oh, cool. uh, and da- uh, Dave uh, Abbey. Uh, ah, Dave yes, Abbey's in the chat room over in yes. the USA. New York, Dave is. He's in wow. New York. So good uh, morning, afternoon, evening, morning. I don't know. You've just come <laughs> from there. I know. I should know. Yeah. Well, I was eight <laughs> hours behind. Yeah. Uh, so uh, hello to you, Dave. Thanks for joining us in the chat room. So on the next story then, Matt. Yes, next story. Uh, bear with me a moment. Sorry, my tablet's taking a moment to load now. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and I can't feel my fingers, so I can't... Uh, I, I'm struggling to Matt's get it. fingers have gone numb. <laughs> Here we go. We're Here away. We go. Sorry. Uh, so this is again with Singapore, and it's uh, PAL eyes long haul expansion with 
A350s. Sorry, so I'm trying to do two things at once here, operate the cameras and do this. Uh, Philippine Airlines, that's uh, PAL, is targeting to expand its footprint in Europe and the USA with its latest commitment for up to 12 Airbus A350-900s. The airline signed a memorandum of understanding to acquire six of the type at the Singapore Air Show with options for another six aircraft in a deal worth $1.8 billion at list prices. Wow. PAL President and Chief Operating Officer Jamie Bolsticker, apologies if that's wrong, <laughs> says uh, that the first A350 is scheduled to be delivered to the airline by uh, the end of 2018, with two others to follow in the first half of 2019. The jets will have 300 seats in a three-class configuration. Bautista said that uh, the Rolls-Royce Trent XWB-powered jet will allow PAL to operate non-stop from Manila to the US West Coast and New York, as well as to destinations in Europe. PAL is currently operating some of these flights with its six fuel-hungry Airbus A340s, some of which will be retired when the Ooh, A350s... Nick's favourite. Uh, <laughs> Don't upset him, he's in the right, chat room. Okay, all right, sorry. When the A350s are delivered. Asked why the airline chose the A350 over the Boeing 787-9, which uh, it was also evaluating, a Baltista said that he believes the Airbus aircraft will help it operate long-haul services efficiently and that the jet is viable for the airline technically and commercially. Uh, he also discloses that PAL is studying the possibility of adding regional jets or turboprops to its fleet for the operation of domestic routes where there are runway constraints. Its PAL Express unit currently has four Bombardier-8Q400s and four Q300s in service and it's, um, in fact actually we, there's, there's news that we're covering very yeah, shortly have, yeah. about um, Bombardier which is, uh, do you like how I got the name right there for the oh, first, no, <laughs> first Matt, go? Matt yeah. normally says Bombardier. Bom Bombardier. Yes. <laughs> it's Bombardier. I know, I know. I know. I know. Told off he's learning. He's learning. I know, I am getting so there. So good news is that for Airbus then with the yeah. uh, with the A350 orders. Uh, yeah. They're obviously uh, competing. They are literally head-to-head, -head, Boeing and Airbus, mm. with these orders, uh, which are growing and growing. Yeah. Every time we do a show, I think there's another airline has ordered either a, uh, yeah, the 737 Maxes yeah. or uh, or the A350s or the, yeah. A, or the A321 Neos, new engine yeah. options. Absolutely. So that's really yeah. good news for them. Absolutely. Uh, can before we move, can I get you to try and bring that story up because I'm struggling to do it? Yeah, I'll myself. do that. Yeah, yeah I've okay. got that here. Don't panic. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so yes, yeah, sorry. The joys of uh, doing it live, live in a cockpit where we haven't got our usual creature comforts. So next on the news is on the breaking travel news site, and uh, headline: Aeromobile brings in flight connectivity to Swiss passengers. So leading the in-flight connectivity provider Aeromobile has partnered with Swiss to allow its passengers in all cabin classes to use their mobile devices to call, text and browse the internet at 30,000 feet. As you do. Aeromobile <laughs> is a registered mobile network operator which enables airline passengers to roam in flight. That sounds a bit weird, roam in flight. Uh, through this partnership with Swiss, passengers uh, will be able to use their own mobile devices uh, in flight just as they would on the ground. The first fully connected flight entered service in early February 2016 with a Boeing 777-300ER. Swiss will roll out further Boeing 777 aircraft with in-flight connectivity in the coming months, travelling to destinations including New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Hong Kong and Bangkok. Aeromobile provides technology that allows a safe passengers uh, to, uh, to, who own mobile phones to use them on board the aircraft and uh, the company has been roam, or has roaming agreements uh, with over 320 network operators globally. 
This allows passengers from over 145 countries to use their phones in flight. Since 2008, 36 million passengers have successfully connected to the Aeromobile network in flight. And the service is simple to use as passengers simply turn their mobile phones on to connect to a network and are billed directly by their mobile operator. Prices are comparable to international roaming rates, and uh, this is this is something that we had on board um, the Virgin flight that we had right. Matt, out yeah. uh, out of uh, Gatwick a few or a week ago. What, the ability to send uh, the ability text to send text messages. Yeah, once the aircraft climbs above ten thousand feet, um, the Wi-Fi or the enabling service yep. is switched on. And um, you can then sec, uh, send texts and uh, make phone calls, um, but obviously you use your um, your roaming charges, which you you, you get charged anyway um, around, and which is not cheap. I will have to no, say, Matt, it no. is not cheap to text and call whilst you're on board the aircraft. Well, that's hardly a surprise, though. I mean, but I mean, I've 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 said this before, hasn't it? It's just like you know, virtually anything is possible these days. But it, you know, it's the same old story. Everything comes with a price, doesn't it? But uh, anyway, on to the next story. Uh, this is the penultimate story, and this is to do with Virgin Galactic. This is one you you found. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, I I know it's uh, I know it's not directly to do with with aviation, but obviously Richard Branson, who is massive certainly with Virgin Atlantic. Um, but uh, this is of course Virgin Galactic, and this is on the CNN website. So apologies, as it's an American website. So uh, <laughs> one always worries about accuracy when apologies. it involves. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So Virgin Atlantic unveils its new spaceship, and this is quite big news here in the UK. Um, uh, it is um, uh, Port in Cal California. Uh, sorry, let me. here we go. Virgin Galactic's race to become the first major private space tourism company has just got closer to reality. After more than three years of construction, Richard Branson's company unveiled a new spaceship Friday at the uh, Moj is it Mojave Air? Mojave. Mojave. Mojave Air and Spaceport in California. It is a requirement for one uh, it, it was, sorry, it is a replacement for the one that crashed back in 2014, killing the test pilot which obviously was a very sad story which we covered at the time uh, is it f uh, physicist uh, Stephen Hawking named the new vehicle Virgin Spaceship VSS Unity in a rec recorded speech and on Twitter uh, Branson said that the new vehicle means space can be made accessible in a way that has only ever been dreamed about before. Our beautiful new spaceship, the VSS Unity, hmm. is the embodiment of that goal and also a great testament to what can be achieved when true teamwork, great skill and deep pride are combined with a common purpose, Branson said, according to a company press release. On Thursday, the company said that because of the fatal crash, the new spaceship would not blast off and head straight up into space anytime soon. Instead, it faces extensive testing periods, which I think everybody is very relieved about. It's very sensible, isn't it? Once the craft has fully checked out, Virgin uh, Galactic, I keep saying Virgin Atlantic, I don't mean that, do I? <laughs> Virgin Galactic plans to use it to ferry passengers up 50 miles above the Earth's surface, a height the company said would qualify them as bona fide space tourists. That's so cool. One of the things that I think is most powerful is that we'll be able able to get a new perspective on our planet as hundreds and eventually millions of people are able to go into space, said George uh, Whitesades, the company's CEO. More than 700 people have signed up to fly on Virgin Galactic, even though the company requires a $250,000 upfront fee for a seat. So when will the passengers begin, flights begin? The company tweeted... 
and press releases are noticeably short on dates. But uh, here are some of the key things that Virgin Galactic said that will happen next. After the ground tests are done, the spaceship will be flown on the back uh, of its mothership, the White Knight 2. Next comes glide testing. The craft flies like a glider from an altitude of 45,000 plus feet, eight miles, where pilot testing is handling, uh, where pilots are testing its handling. So rocket-powered test flights are next. Each flight going a little higher and a little faster. When it crosses the 100,000 feet, that's 19 miles, the spaceship will be above 90 99% of the atmosphere and the pilots will experience weightlessness that is so cool wow i know i know so so i presume we're saving obviously to to, to do that you've I got know, any desire to head off into space i, I would i would love to, to just to have a little sort of glimpse into space i mean sometimes yeah. when you when you go transatlantic flights you know you do go up to the higher flight levels where you can yeah. see the curvature of the earth yeah. you know when you go past certain flight level i think nick's in the yeah. chat room he'll be able to say but there yeah. are, i think it's, it's above forty thousand yeah. feet uh when you can see the darkness and the mm. curvature of the earth which yeah. is pretty cool well, i've seen that yeah. a few times well, of course is it major tim peak is it who's, yes. who's who's there actually who's actually at the international space station oh, wow. at the moment that's really cool lucky isn't him it? yeah absolutely anyway on to the final story so the final story uh, a bit of a sad story really but it's you know let's hope this um, pans yeah. out well this for these guys glitch, hopefully yeah on the bbc news website and the headline bombardier to cut seven thousand jobs worldwide and uh, so Canadian plane and train maker Bombardier will cut its workforce by around 7,000 people over the next two years, it is said. Job losses will be partly offset by hiring for the production of its C-series commercial jets, it said. Mm. It's cutting 580 jobs from its Belfast operation this year and potentially a further 500 next year. Bombardier says it's Northern Ireland's largest manufacturing employer. It has uh, a Northern Ireland aerospace workforce of 6,000 people and says it accounts for 10% of Northern Ireland's manufacturing exports. Mm. Around 200 Bombardier employee jobs in Northern Ireland are currently at risk of redundancy and uh, they've said that they re deeply regret the impact this will have on the workforce yeah. and their families but it is crucial that we uh, the the right size of our business uh, is made to put in line with the current market reliant um, uh, re realities yeah there we go that's just coffee's making me talk <laughs> <laughs> that'll Dave, be what it is yes. i know <laughs> davy thompson uh, of the unite union told radio 5 live that there's been a drip feed of job losses over the last 14 months probably uh, about 800 job losses on the belfast side so it's not a major shock if something has uh, like this has uh, eventually come along mm. certainly over a thousand would be a hammer blow for us in terms of northern ireland manufacturing and uh, Bombardier will also cut 270 management and contractor jobs at his trains and business in uh, yeah, the UK with 44 permanent positions going. And uh, the UK rail business employs 3,500 people. This is sad, really, Matt. I mean, yeah. it, it, I mean Bombardier are, are a growing you know, airline or aircraft manufacturer coming along quite well with the C-Series. Yeah. You know, they've got the C, uh, the 300 series. Uh, Bombardier C series and that coming on, and, and the airlines are starting to, to buy these aircraft. It's just yeah. a shame, you know, that they've had to make these job losses or mm. these cuts. But like it said, you know, but if it, needs must, if I, needs I must, it's a trouble. It's the, the way things are now. Uh, it's such a, a you know a, a huge cutthroat market really in the aviation yeah. world. I know um, it's always sad when it when it, especially for us when it involves you know you know British jobs as well. It's 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 not good, is it? There's no two ways about it. 
So, hello to everyone who's still in the <laughs> chat room. Matty Fab's in the chat Yay, room. Yay, hello, Matty Fab. So, hello to you, Matty Fab. Do you know what? I'm still looking around, Matt. I'm looking around. I know. Look at, look at where we're I, sitting I know, right now. I know, it's crazy. Look isn't at it? where we're I don't sitting know, I don't right know how, now. It's honestly, this it's, is honestly, it's amazing, isn't it? It's it is. absolutely amazing. It is, absolutely. And, uh, yeah. But whilst this is our 100th episode, things must continue as normal. Yes. And it is time to welcome our resident pilot uh, and he's got a fantastic little segment for us which I was listening to um, whilst editing uh, last night so uh, yes uh, it is time to bring you uh, plane safety as uh, from the flight deck plane safety from the flight deck with pilot Pip Hello everyone, it's Pip here with my segment for the 100th episode of Plain Talking UK. Wow, 100 episodes. Guys, well done, congratulations on, on coming so far. I'm so jealous that I'm not able to be there with you at Norwich Aviation Museum, sitting up in that wonderful Vulcan aircraft. Unfortunately, I'm working, but it's just fantastic. I wish you all the best. I hope you have a great day, and I'm looking forward to many hundreds more episodes. I really do listen every week. It's my main source of aviation news. You know, I don't read the magazines, the flight globals and all this. I just rely on you guys to give me the news. You know, listeners, it takes a lot of time and commitment and, and money as well to put these podcasts out. And to do it every week really does take quite some commitment. So I'm very pleased to have been able to watch the show develop over the years and be rewarded with the, with the huge listenership you've now got. And I'm very grateful, of course, to have been involved in just a very small way with the podcast over the episodes. It's been a, a lot of fun for me doing these segments. But in celebration of the 100th episode, and given your location right now sitting up in the cockpit of the most iconic of British aircraft, I thought I would do a little segment all about the Vulcan and its most, perhaps at least, its most glorious hour. And that's, of course, Operation Blackbuck, the RAF mission to uh, liberate the Falkland Islands back in 1982. So not so much of a, a safety from the flight deck segment, just more of a, a tale of daring do straight out of the boys' own stories. So let's go back to the early days of 1982. The Argentine military government had invaded the Falkland Islands, that small group of islands a few hundred miles off the Argentinian coast in the South Atlantic, inhabited by not more than a few hundred British people, farmers mostly, and an awful lot of sheep and penguins. And the Argentinians felt, and indeed they still feel, that they had a legitimate claim to ownership of the Falkland Islands. But given the general civil unrest in the country at the time, in Argentina, they felt that they needed a something to get the population back on side. So they took a huge gamble in invading the Falkland Islands. And their thinking was that the Falkland Islands is just a small piece of land, 8,000 miles away from Britain. Were we really going to go to all the, the effort to try and regain the Falklands, given its immense distance and its relative strategic unimportance? So it was something of a gamble on the part of the Argentines, but... Weighing everything up, they thought it worth the risk, and they didn't think that Britain would attempt a military retaliation. However, two things they didn't bank on. And the first of those was our very emphatic and feisty Prime Minister of the time, Margaret Thatcher. Now, 
love or hate her politics, there's no denying that she was a key personality in the decision to retake the Falkland Islands. And the second thing they underestimated was the resourcefulness and inventiveness of the British Armed Forces at the time. The, the spirit of the Second World War was still alive and strong amongst the, the Navy, the Army and the Air Force. So, of course, the decision was made to send a task force the 8,000 miles to the other side of the world to retake the Falkland Islands. Now, the Royal Air Force at the time, and indeed the Navy and the Army as well, had been undergoing a period of, of shrinking, but they were very much training for and targeted on a war in Eastern Europe against the, the Soviet bloc countries. They were training for nuclear war, ground battles close to home. They were not thinking at all about long-range missions halfway across the world. So it presented something of a dilemma for the armed forces to suddenly have to refocus their efforts. Now, I suppose it's not a big problem to send a, a naval task force 8,000 miles around the world. But the RAF, of course, didn't want to be left out. So they were left scratching their heads thinking, how are we going to be part of this? And the plan they came up with was audacious, to say the least. What we had at our disposal at the time was an aging force of Vulcan bombers, part of the original V-Force and in 1982, it was equipped and being used solely for training missions for nuclear war. It wasn't equipped for conventional bombing. The crews weren't practiced in it. They certainly weren't practiced in air-to-air -air refueling. The missions they were training for were going to be relatively short, possibly one-way missions, delivering nuclear weapons to the, the Soviet Union. Thank goodness it never came to it. But not wanting to be left out, there was a very hasty reappraisal and reworking of the Vulcan forces. Now due to the immense distances involved it was clear that they were going to have to rely on air-to-air -air refueling. The problem being they'd taken out all of their air-to-air -air refueling kit from the Vulcans many years before so they had to hastily rebuild the air-to-air -air refueling capability. They had to start training the crews how to do air-to-air -air refueling. They'd never done it before many of them. They had to scavenge all sorts of parts from other aircraft fleets. For instance, they had to steal an INS, Inertial Navigation Systems, from Nimrod aircraft, I think, and they had to steal, beg, borrow, and nick bits from all sorts of other things to make this whole thing even vaguely possible. And of course, there were so many unknowns here. Operating the Vulcans over such long distances, they didn't really know, for instance, exactly how the fuel flows and the fuel burns might go. Uh, and the same goes as well for the Victor refueling tankers that they were going to be using. So the whole thing was in a bit of an adventure, to say the least. So the whole thing was set up very hastily. The crew started practicing conventional bombing in the bombing ranges in the UK and out over the North Sea. They started learning how to do air-to-air -air refueling. And very quickly, they found themselves being shipped off to Ascension Island, which was a, a very small volcanic British island with a single runway, which rather conveniently is located almost exactly halfway to the Falkland Islands in the, the mid-Atlantic. In total, there were five Vulcan bombers sent down to Ascension Island, including XM-612, the very aircraft that the boys are sitting on right now. Although it didn't actually take an active part in the bombing missions, it was there, ready to rock and roll. It was one of the standby aircraft, so a little bit of history there for you chaps. And the rough plan was this. Two fully laden Vulcan bombers would take off with the intention that only one of them would actually reach the Falklands. One of them would be a backup in case something went wrong. 
and the, those two were going to be supported by about a dozen Victor air-to-air -air refueling tankers. The idea being that Victors would refuel Victors, which would then refuel other Victors, kind of like a, a collapsing deck of cards, to be left with just one fully laden Victor tanker, which would then do a final refueling on the Vulcan just before its bombing run. It was a hugely complex operation. And as I say, they were not entirely sure of the numbers. And actually, as we'll see in a second, it didn't turn out exactly as planned. Now, there were actually five uh, bombing missions that the Vulcans undertook, although it's really only the first one that gets all the, the stories and all the acclaim being the most famous of them all. So it was Operation Blackbuck, and the first of them took place on the night of the 30th of April, the 1st of May, and this is really the start of the Falklands War proper. So on that first mission, sitting in the bomb bay of each of those two Vulcans were 21 1,000-pound bombs, so over nine tons of high explosives, which combined with the fuel, the full fuel load of the aircraft meant that they were actually some two and a half tons over their maximum takeoff weight. And because Ascension Island out in the mid-Atlantic in the tropics is a relatively hot place, the overloaded aircraft would have had to run their four massive 20,000-pound Bristol Sidley Olympus engines up to over 103% of their rated power on the ground to even get the aircraft airborne. So you can imagine the scene in the, the dark night sitting on the volcanic island, the runway light stretching across into the distance, and the howl of those, that wonderful howl of, of the Vulcan engines and the, the slow acceleration as it limped down the runway and slowly got into the air. And as I say, the plan was for only one of the Vulcans to actually make the, the attack. The second aircraft was intended as an airborne spare in case of a, a failure in the primary bomber. And to fly the distance and return, each mission required the support of those 12 Victor tankers. The Victors, of course, themselves originally being nuclear bombers, but years before having been converted to tankers. This was an aging fleet of aircraft, remember. So as the 13 initial aircraft of Operation Blackbuck got airborne, that's the two Vulcans and 11 tankers, the requirement for the spare Vulcan quickly became apparent because the, the primary aircraft soon had a pressurization problem. The rubber seal around the wind, one of the windows went and they couldn't hold pressurization, which meant that they had to drop out. They had to return to Ascension very early on, which meant the reserve aircraft XM-607 then became the primary bomber. Also, one of the victors had to turn back as well due to a mechanical problem with the refueling system. And that aircraft was also replaced by uh, an airborne spare. So there were 11 aircraft remaining which started to fly south-southwest across the long Atlantic, 4,000 miles across the Atlantic in the dark with some pretty archaic navigation equipment. Now, despite their relative lack of experience with air-to-air -air refueling, uh, the tanking went largely well up until the last but one of the refueling slots. The... By now, nine depleted tankers had returned to Ascension Island. Remember, there were tankers refueling other tankers in order to be able to refuel the one Vulcan. So they'd all returned, leaving just the one Vulcan and two Victors left. And the last of the Victors, which was refueling the other one, actually uh, had a bit of an incident. Its refueling probe was broken in turbulence. So the two aircraft reverse rolls, the broken one, uh, successfully returned to Ascension, leaving just the one Vulcan and the last Victor, XL-189, commanded by squadron leader Bob Tuxford. But they had some concerns regarding the, the probe breakage. 
and they thought perhaps the uh, the drogue, the refueling drogue, had been damaged in the accident. So they weren't sure if they were going to be able to take on fuel themselves. So they weren't sure if they were going to be able to make it back to Ascension. But they carried on. And in fact, due to much higher fuel burns, they actually carried on way past their point of no return. The commander, Bob Tuxford, took a, an executive decision that they were going to carry on to ensure the success of the mission, carry on to be able to refuel that Vulcan the one last time so it had the fuel it needed to complete its bombing run. However, it left them with not enough fuel to get back to Ascension Island. By now, the Vulcan XM-607 was close to the Falklands, descending to just 300 feet above the sea in order to reduce the risk of detection by Argentine radar. And then just 40 miles to the target, pulled up, climbed to a 10,000 feet for the beginning of the bombing run. Of course, navigation over 4,000 miles of featureless ocean is very difficult, but it proved to be phenomenally accurate as they were right on course and right on time and on target. And they flew across Port Stanley Airfield, the military airfield on the island, at 10,000 feet and released the 21 1,000-pound bombs. There was no enemy action. There was no anti-aircraft fire. They didn't mount any sort of attack on the Vulcan at all. They were taken completely by surprise. Not for a second had they even imagined it was possible to send a bomber all the way from the UK, 8,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean, halfway around the world, to bomb the small islands in the South Atlantic. They were caught totally by surprise. Of the 21 bombs, one hit the runway at its midpoint, cratering the concrete and putting the runway out of action. Many fell to the side, causing serious damage to some of the airfield installations, some of the aircraft parked there in the stores. Two Argentine officers killed in the attack. And the Vulcan was able to turn northwards again and transmit the, the code words that the mission had been successful. Which, of course, is an enormous relief for Bob Tuxford in the last remaining Victor tanker because he was now able to break radio silence and transmit uh, a message that he was desperately short of fuel. So they were able to dispatch another Victor tanker from Ascension to refuel him, so they made it back. And in fact, squadron leader Bob Tuxford was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for his actions. And the Vulcan flew northwards and was met by another Victor tanker, which refueled it for the return journey with the support of a Nimrod uh, airborne radar aircraft. They were able to help the two aircraft meet over the, the mid-Atlantic off the Brazilian coast. And that Vulcan returned successfully to Ascension Island, having flown an 8,000-mile, 16-hour round trip to deliver 21 bombs onto the tiny Falkland Islands. A huge success and is testament to the, the massive inventiveness and daring of the RAF at the time. And of course, this was only the first of the Black Buck missions. There were, in fact, seven in total, of which the aircraft the guys are sitting on right now, XM612, was to be the lead aircraft on Black Buck Operation 3, but unfortunately that one was cancelled before takeoff due to poor weather. But of course, the effect that this had on the outcome of the war was immeasurable. Never for a second did it occur to the Argentinians that the Brits could mount such long-range bombing missions and of course the Falklands are only a couple of hundred miles off the coast of Argentina so although I don't think it was ever an option seriously discussed but it it was perfectly clear to the world now that we could mount and successfully carry out raids bombing raids on the Argentinian mainland so that was a real worry for the Argentinians 
So they somewhat retreated. They pulled back some of their frontline aircraft. They took them off the Falkland Islands and relocated them onto the mainland to keep them out of harm's way and to be able to protect their cities should the Brits decide to, to attack Argentinian territory. Now, this has just been a very brief summary of that event back in 1982, but if you'd like to learn more, you should read the book called Vulcan 607 by Roland White. It's an absolutely gripping, thrilling account of Operation Blackbuck. I can highly recommend that book. But for the guy sitting in their Vulcan studio, you're sitting on a piece of history. That aircraft was right there. It was on Ascension Island back in 1982. You can probably still find some of the volcanic ash and sand somewhere buried in the engines. So treat her well, boy. She's a, a grand old lady. But for now, for the 100th episode, congratulations again. Looking forward to a, another 100, 200, 1,000 episodes. Who knows? From me, I've got to go and get ready for work now. Got a uh, couple of flights today, Luton to Belfast and Belfast down to Innsbruck. So unfortunately, I'm going to be flying. I really would love to have been there with you guys today. But until the next time, everybody, take care and fly safe. Oh, well, thanks, Pip. Absolutely cracking segment, as always. And such very nice, kind words right at the very beginning. OK, so it is now time. Carlos has popped outside. Uh, let me just bring the cameras back so you can see me. Sorry. Uh, here we go. Sorry, I'm just having a moment. Uh, yeah, Carlos has just popped outside. You can see I'm in the Vulcan all on my own. I'm causing havoc, as you would imagine. And uh, it is uh, time now to uh, say hello to Carl, who is downstairs. Hello, Carl. So you join me then, and uh, outside in the cold, uh, in the, in the cold and slightly damp uh, conditions outside here at the uh, City of Norwich Aviation Museum, and uh, very kindly Colin has agreed to uh, join me here. Welcome onto the show, Colin. Welcome to the City of Aviation Museum. Great. So thanks again, Colin, for uh, for obviously for allowing us to uh, to be here, and obviously take over the Vulcan for the morning. And uh, yeah, thanks for braving the cold weather. <laughs> Yeah, we get used to it. <laughs> exactly. So as you can see, we are sitting underneath uh, XM612, uh, the Avro Vulcan here at the museum. And uh, Colin's very kindly, like I said, agreed to join us and answer a few questions. Uh, so we're going to crack on straight away before we freeze. So Colin, uh, some of the history on the uh, on the Vulcan then. Um, well, the Vulcan itself is an aircraft. Um, well, it's been a much-loved iconic aircraft over the years. First entered service in 1957, crew of five, um, powered by four uh, Rolls-Royce uh, Olympus engines, um, range of uh, 4,600 miles depending on uh, what it was used for, massive wingspan, 111 foot wingspan, a lot of people don't realise quite how big it is until they actually get here and get underneath it. Um, but yeah, those are some of the general stats and one of the things that people I forget is uh, uh, that it's only 10 years younger than the Lancaster bomber, you know. So uh, technology moved on a pace back then. Well, wow. and uh, so a bit of the history then, Colin, on the aircraft we're sitting underneath right now, X-ray Mike 612. Right, yeah, our, our particular aircraft uh, delivered to 9 Squadron at Collingsby in 1964, uh, configured in, in white at the time. Um, in 68 it spent a month at Boskin Dam before moving to Waddington Wing. Um, then it's prepared for the Falklands in 1982. Uh, it's prepared for two missions back then. Uh, one was aborted because of a, a faulty window seal and the other one was uh, cancelled because of uh, weather conditions at the time. Um, but the uh, 
longest flight this this particular aircraft had in nine hours 20 minutes to ascension and uh, overall 1563 flights this aircraft has done so wow it's, it's done a few miles it's done a few miles yeah on the clock yeah oh, well so you said that this was originally in white then uh, originally white yeah and then uh, at some point it was configured into its uh, it's current colours. Uh, the underside it appears is the darker colour. They painted it darker for the Falklands missions. Oh, wow, yeah, because you, you were obviously you've seen the documentaries on telly about the, uh, the the mission that these aircraft done, and uh, I also read that this this was you know involved in in that mission that uh, down to the Falk uh, to the Falklands. Yes, it was. Yes, so as I said, uh, it was prepared for two of the missions, but unfortunately one one was aborted and the other one was was cancelled but uh, yeah so we're luckily to have a sort of combat uh, combat history aircraft really and uh, yeah and it's uh, people love it you know people absolutely love our Vulcan well people love the Vulcan in general don't they so um, when the when we had the Vulcan flew over Norwich Airport uh, last year um, the crowds flocked here it was just an amazing day you know to see to see HS558 fly over and uh, yes Oh, that's that's an amazing aeroplane. So how d did this uh, this particular Vulcan end? How did it uh, or how did it uh, come come here to the museum? Right, this, this particular aircraft uh, was the first first aircraft on th this site for our museum, and uh, through through a very kind donation of a member at the time, we were able to buy the aircraft, uh, and then uh, the uh, that, that got the museum collection off on this particular site. It was flown in next door at Norwich Airport, and it was towed into its present position, where it's uh, where we tried to look after it. So the Royal Air Force flew it in here themselves, or they have yeah, sort of? I, th I assume it was the uh, that was back before I was involved, but I, I assume it was them here back in 1984. Yeah. Oh wow! Um, I think there are some pictures on uh, uh, on YouTube that, that shows that very briefly coming in there. I actually I I done a bit of research on this aircraft and uh, I saw as well that this this particular aircraft XM612 this actually flew into somewhere special to me to the island of Malta to Luca Airport in Malta yeah this actually flew into there which um, was quite good and that was when it was painted in the uh, in the white colours then yeah. yeah so what does it take Colin to keep this aircraft um, XM612 open to the public. Um, what it takes, lots of enthusiasm, lots of dedication, lots of hard work by our magnificent band of volunteers that we have at City of Norwich Aviation Museum. Um, I, can't, I can't praise them highly enough. Uh, people work on these aeroplanes uh, any time of day or night just to, just to keep them in good condition, just so that the public can come and, and look and see a, a, a part of history, a very important part of history. Because I'd like to point out as well to all the listeners watching the show and also uh, listening to the audio podcast, this is one of probably the very, very few Vulcans in the country where people visiting the museum can actually go on board and up the steps in onto the flight deck. Yeah, and I think that uh, you said it all there. I think very few places that you, you can actually go in a military aeroplane and sit in the cockpit. And, um, and that's what people love. Uh, people who come here and, and, and sit in our Vulcan, um, uh, just come out and you can see on their faces they're, they're so pleased, enthusiastic that they're able to do that kind of thing. So, so in your view it's important to have exhibits like this um, 612 um, available for the public to, to view? Absolutely, it, 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 it's absolutely critical, it's part of our history 
um, and it, it, it's it's important for the museum, but it's important for the history of aviation in in general that we we keep uh, aircraft like this in a condition so that people can see what it was like back then, sense and feel a part of history. That's awesome. That's absolutely fantastic, Colin. So a bit of a uh, bit of a background on yourself and some of the some of your uh, your likes, your passions of aviation. Then how did it all start? <laughs> right, I've uh, I'm I'm not a military person. I haven't been in the military. Um, I just like aeroplanes. Um, I used to make plastic models as a kid, um, but it, it back in the mid eighties, a very good friend of mine encouraged me to air shows, and I never looked back from then. I love going to air shows. I love being a volunteer here. I'm I'm a trustee of the museum as well. Um, I just want to make a difference, and uh, being amongst it, this gives me a chance to be amongst aeroplanes. Um, uh, I'd love to fly. Uh, I don't. I've had a few trial flights. The best one was um, a T6 Texan in Florida, Warbird Adventures, doing aerobatics, full hands-on with the instructor. That was amazing. Um, so if I, did, if I, if I could, could get a chance to fly, I'd love to do it. Oh, wow, that must have been one hell of an experience to have. Yeah, definitely. So one of the questions we ask um, all the all the, the people we have on the show, pilots or, or any of the enthusiasts we have on the show, is if you're given the chance to pilot any aircraft, current or historic, um, so flying or, or retired, what would be that aircraft for you? What what would you love to have a go at flying? Um, one of my favourite, ironically, one of my favourite aeroplanes is the is the Vought Corsair. Um, I, for some reason, I just love that aeroplane. But if I got a chance to fly an aeroplane, it'd have to be a Spitfire. Um, I'm I'm a, I'm a supporter of the grey Spitfire, and, and I'm hoping one day that I might treat myself to a flight one day. That would be something really special for me. Yeah. Oh, I bet that that'd be an absolutely fantastic. So you you can uh, you can go places in the UK and and have the chance to fly the Spitfire. Yeah, you can now. You can now. It's, it's a bit pricey, so I'll start saving. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, try learning to fly, Colin. I tell you, it's not it's not a cheap thing at all learning to fly. No, definitely not. Um, so, a bit more information about where we're sitting now at the museum and what other what other sort of iconic exhibits have you got here at the museum at Norwich. Okay, well, well, the City of Norwich Aviation Museum is situated in next to the Village of St. Faye's. Um, we're adjacent to Norwich Airport. Um, we have we have fifteen aircraft here, apart from the Vulcan. We have we have the Nimrod, Nimrod MR2. We've got a Lightning. Hunters, we've got Jaguar, we've got a number of cockpit sections, and in the, in the building itself, we've got lots of historic artifacts that have been donated by people, so personal records, and uh, we aim. Uh, the, the main aim is a collection of of, of historic artifacts from airfields in Norfolk. So that's that's our mission, really. So anything to do a aviation from airfields in Norfolk. And you've got in the corner, just just over there towards you can't see on the, with the uh, camera, but uh, just over in the corner, you've got a, quite a uh, a one-off iconic aircraft that's just been repainted. Yes, this F twenty-seven, the um, that was very kindly um, put back in its livery by uh, Air Livery over at the airport, and uh, so we have we have uh, you know, good relationships with the airport. Yes, and uh, with that and the Herald, we have two really really iconic aircraft there, and uh, fingers crossed, one day we hope to get them undercover. That'd be great, and also just like to point out that just over behind us here, over to my left, is uh, is the Nimrod, and I'd like to point out as well that the Nimrod is open as well for uh, for visitors to come in and view if if they uh, come and see you and ask you nicely. Absolutely, yeah, we do tours around the Vulcan and the Nimrod. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, 
and uh, we like to encourage that because it gives you a good feel of uh, what it's like to be on in a military aeroplane. Oh, that's great. So a bit about the museum then before we close, just uh, where can everyone find out all the information and the, and the various things to, 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 so they can find you online? Right, if you go online, www.cnam.org.uk is our website, and if you want to email us, it's admin at cnam.org.uk, and that's C-N-A-M. So there we go, CNAM, and look up for the City of Norwich Aviation Museum online. You'll see all that. We'll put the links uh, on our show notes for this episode so you can find them there for those of you guys who are visiting from the US and Australia, because I know we've got some of you guys in the chat room this morning um, from, uh, from across the pond as such, so you can come over here when you're in the UK and visit this fantastic museum. So I'd like to say, uh, I'm going to let you get back into the warm, uh, Colin. I'd like to say a massive thank you to everyone here at the museum for allowing us to obviously be here with the Vulcan uh, on this chilly Saturday morning. But uh, any uh, anything you want to say, Colin, before we before we wrap up? Uh, just just been a pleasure to host you and uh, and uh, hi to all your listeners. And uh, if you're over this way, come and give us a look. But congratulations on your hundredth and uh, come and see us again one day. Um, we're just about to enter a new era with the, with the changes we've got here, the roadways coming through. Uh, we're going to start looking at making the place something special. So that's it then, guys. Don't forget, when you're here in the, uh, the city here, make sure you do come over to the uh, City of Norwich Aviation Museum here. And, you know, for, for I mean, it doesn't cost hardly anything to get in here. No, that's less than a fiver to get in. There we go, less than a fiver. Look. It's absolute bargain. Some of these fantastic aircraft here that you can come and see while you're at the museum. So from me, Carlos, uh, I'm going to hand you back over to uh, the studio where Matt is uh, up, up in the uh, Vulcan. And uh, so from you, Colin. Goodbye, and uh, thanks again. See you soon. Take care, and goodbye from me. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well done, Carl. Well done, well done. Right, OK. We're going to be getting on with the military in just a couple of moments, uh, but we'll be doing that right after these messages. The Plane Talking UK podcast is a voluntary project that aims to keep you informed with the latest aviation-related stories from newswires across the globe. Producing our content does cost money, though. If you enjoy our show, why not help us keep on the air by making a donation towards the server and website hosting fees through PayPal? Any contributions would be greatly appreciated. Are you an Amazon user? If so, why not do your shopping through the link on our website? There's no cost to yourself and Amazon pay us a small referral fee on qualifying purchases. To find out more about the show and to meet the team, take yourself to our website www.plaintalkinguk.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash UK on Twitter via at UK or get in touch via email on podcast at plaintalkinguk.com Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. Aviation media has long been the domain of the newspapers and magazines. Well, not anymore. I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran, and we're bringing aviation right into your radio. Yes, we're making aviation cool and interesting for everyone. Hang on, aviation's always been cool. Check this out. How cool is this? Crash, crash, turn that down.
Here at Plane Crazy Down Under, we've got pilots, engineers, air traffic controllers, industry leaders, even politicians dropping by to talk to us about the amazing world of aviation right here in Australia and occasionally in New Zealand as well. Wow, that's cooler than I thought, mate. Find us at PlaneCrazyDownUnder.com, on iTunes, or lurking about on other people's podcasts just like this one. We've got crazy accents and lots of great aviation content. And we promise not to talk about the cricket. No, never. Not the cricket. Quack, 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 quack. <laughs> what is cricket anyhow? Something we win a lot. Oh, there oh. <laughs> oh dear! Of course, we oh. heard from them very uh, right at the very start. I know of the we show, did. We heard from, uh, from well from Grant. Steve was yeah, uh, fast asleep. Yeah, as well as to be how he is always <laughs> from, from the way you talk to them. Anyway, welcome back to the Vulcan. Hello, I'm back in. <laughs> I'm back in the Vulcan. Hello, yes, everyone. Absolutely. I'm just waving there. Hello, yeah. everyone. I am back in the Vulcan, and uh, big thanks to Colin as well yeah. for braving the uh, winter weather. Yeah, uh, fresh, which, uh, the the fre- way. fresh weather, fresh yeah, weather outside. Absolutely. No, so uh, the, the chat rooms uh, have been been a bit neglected yes, while I've been sorry downstairs, about that. but yeah. Matt has been busy doing all the, uh, <laughs> all the, the audio and technical on stuff. The air. Yeah. So uh, big <laughs> thanks to Matt. Yeah, is, is the camera on? Yes, is it is. is, it it is, is. That's yes, good. That's down. good. You that's all right. I'm just. Oh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so uh, a big thanks for everyone who has yeah. joined us today. Don't forget, uh, we've got some uh, military news coming up in a yep. bit. Yep. And we've also got some of you guys, your uh, listener feedback yep. um, Absolutely. to we're play We're going to well. do that as the penultimate part of the show. We're going yes, we to pop yeah. outside the Vulcan to say goodbye to everyone. But uh, I think we should get on with the military news. What do you reckon? Yeah, we'll crack on then with our rundown of the military news. So if you're ready, Matt. Yes, I am very much so. Let's go. Let's go. go. <laughs> So our first story then this week on the military news segment, and uh, help if I had the actual page up <laughs> right on here. Uh, oh, <laughs> Do you no, like to borrow mine? <laughs> no, that's okay. I'm fine. I've got it here. So the first story on Flight Global's site yeah. this one, and uh, the headline, Boeing B-52 gets new radar under $5 million modernization plan. So the U.S. Air Force wants to spend more than $500 million replacing the outdated Northrop Grumman ANAPQ-166 mechanically scanned array radar on uh, its 53-year-old Boeing B-52Hs. The old battle wagon, which ceased production in 1962, will not retire anytime soon, but needs a replacement radar if it's to continue supporting uh, nuclear and conventional missions, says the USAF Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategic Plans and Requirements, Lieutenant General Mike Holmes. It provides missions uh, for us that are hard to replicate and primarily the range and payload, uh, Holmes said at an Air Force uh, Association forum in Washington, D.C. on the 18th of February. The radar currently flying on the B-52s is limited by its mean time between failure. It's an old radar, it doesn't have the reliability that they'd like to have, and if you're uh, flying a long duration missions and you need to get uh, a two digit mean time between failure, it means you're uh, flying around with a broken radar a lot. The proposed B-52 Radar Modernization Program, or RMP, receives $491 million across the Air Force's latest five-year spending plan. Uh, this was unveiled on the 9th of February, and even more money is needed beyond 2001. 
It accounts for 71% of proposed B52H modernisation spending through the fiscal year of 2021, which totals 691 million. Home says the Air Force is wor uh, still working through its radar acquisition strategy, but will most likely be bonifying existing radar technologies and components to suit the B-52H instead of developing something new. The Air Force has already replaced the legacy Northrop APQ-164 radar on the Boeing Rockwell B-1B and has long considered doing the same for the APQ-166 on the B-52s. A re-engineering program is also being considered to replace the uh, B-52's eight Pratt & Whitney uh, TF-33s or JT-3D engine turbofans, but that effort has not been funded yet. I mean, they, they, those engines are really old yeah. now, aren't they? I mean, if you've ever seen the B-52 take off, right. if you look on the, uh, on YouTube and watch the videos of the B-52 taking off, it leaves a trail of of uh, what can only be described as uh, black smoke oh, behind right. it. Okay, yeah. right, yes. An engine that needs a little bit of TLC, possibly. Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Just before we move on to the next story, I'm just going to say, because I know Stuart's listening downstairs, I've lost the camera from downstairs, if you could just um, look at that while we, uh, while we do the next story. So the next story, this is on Flight Glass. Global. And the headline is BAE starts final assembly on the Om is it Omani? Oman? Om Omani. Omani, Omani Typhoon, yes. the first Eurofighter Typhoon for the program's seventh customer nation has entered final assembly with the aircraft, the first of 12 on order for the Royal Air Force of Oman. Uh, Eurofighter partner company BAE Systems on the 18th of February announced final assembly had started at its Wharton site in Lancashire, UK. It identifies the aircraft as two-seat trainer and says the activity will begin with the marry-up of the fuselage wings and undercarriage before progressing to fitting of the fin for planes and marry-up of all the systems. Under a contract signed in 2012, Oman will also take delivery of eight Hawk 166 advanced jet trainers from BAE. In its annual results statement for 2015, uh, also released on the 18th of February, the company says the Oman Typhoon and Hawk aircraft program continues to meet all the contractual milestones and is on track for commencement of deliveries in 2017. Meanwhile, BAE says that it delivered 12 typhoons to Saudi Arabia last year from 18 completed in Wharton. The others were for the UK Royal Air Force. With an eye on further business for the U European type, BAE noticed that there are opportunities to secure future Typhoon export sales, supported by the announcement made in September 2015 relating to the supply of 28 aircraft for the Kuwait Air Force. A contract has yet to be signed with the Italian government and Alina Emerci uh, leading the sales campaign in the Gulf state. Flight Global's feats Analyzer database records 408 Eurofighters in active use with the um, air forces in Austria, Germany, Italy, Saudi Arabia, Spain and in the UK. So in the chat room then, uh, Grant McCarran, that, ah. that, that chap there from, uh, some, from some Australia, yeah. from the uh, <laughs> Playing Crazy Down Under podcast, Grant yeah. actually put about uh, the last story, the B-52 story, yeah. that uh, he's put that at least it's uh, got lower emissions than the Volkswagen. 
<laughs> Controversial. Excellent. Oh dear. Well thank, done, you. Thank you yes, for that. Absolutely. Yes. And yes. Uh, oh, Ray Davis has put he likes the uh, likes the ju- the jumpers we're wearing. Well, they're, they're, they're jackets. They're, they're jackets. jackets absolutely. They're jackets, yeah. They're, 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 they're jackets. Yeah. Company wear. Aren't company they, wear. Yeah, absolutely. Or oh, podcast yes. wear. Oh, definitely. Yeah. How's Stuart doing down there? I don't know. He's disappeared. Oh, he's disappeared. <laughs> okay. So uh, next story. Then he still hasn't wiggled with the camera like I asked oh, him to. You see? Yeah. Has he? Has he not done the camera? Okay. How rude. So the next story then on the Royal Air Forces site and the headline 10,000 hours in the air for the Puma 2. So Wednesday the 17th of February marked a significant milestone for the Puma Force as they reached a staggering 10,000 hours flying for the Puma 2. The extensively upgraded helicopter declared an initial operating capability in February 2015 and just over three weeks later deployed to Afghanistan in support of Operation Toral, the ongoing NATO training and support mission. Today the Puma Force reached a collective total of the 10,000 hours for the Puma 2 helicopter and declaring and the full operating capability in July, uh, January sorry, 2016, the Puma Force has maintained a continual readiness for contingency operations and a national standby commitment alongside the ongoing Afghanistan deployment. Emphasizing their key uh, contribution to defense, the Operational Toral Aviation Detachment alone lifted more than 15,000 passengers and over 36,000 kilograms of freight during 2015. Group Captain Simon Patterson of the Puma Force, Commander and RAF uh, Benson Station Commander said, The achievement of 10,000 flying hours since the introduction of the Puma 2 helicopter uh, capability highlights the remarkable commitment and excellent teamwork by the squadron personnel. The project team, industry and others to achieve the goal alongside the continuous detachment in Afghanistan. This has been exceptional and reinforces the importance of support helicopter capabilities to defence. Now this is a helicopter that uh, one of my favourite, the the Puma. I think this is an awesome looking uh, helicopter. It's also yeah. um, used a lot in maritime uh, rescue operations as well. The Puma. It's quite yeah. a good uh, helicopter for that. It's also good at lifting things that are very heavy as well. The <laughs> yeah, Puma. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Bit of a beast. Yeah, but ten thousand hours in the air. Good. That's good. That's good. Yeah. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Uh, high mileage one now. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mile- mileage is. Uh, you, you'd want the air miles to go with that. Oh yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, the air miles would be great for that. Yeah, yeah you get some free flights. So on to our last yeah, story our in the military segment. Yeah, this is on the Royal Air Force website, and it's RAF Tornado flies in desert pink to mark twenty fifth pink year on desert operations. Pink. Wow, I don't know what, what is desert pink. Well, I, I really don't know. I think because when when the uh, I think it's when the tornado was um, was obviously deployed into the desert. Yes. Um, in sort of Kuwait and, and stuff. Yeah. Um, the, obviously, the sand is kind of that kind of pinky golden color. Yeah. So they painted the tornadoes in this colour yeah. to kind of blend in, I think, really. Really? A bit of camouflage. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, anyway, the story goes 25 years since the Royal Air Force... For, for us, the for Royal us? Air Force... <laughs> <laughs> uh, ...helped liberate Kuwait from Saddam Hussein's forces. An RAF tornado GR4 has been painted in the iconic Gulf War desert pink paint scheme to honour the aircraft's type uh, almost continuous operational service since then on the 28th of February uh, that is the um, sorry apologies um, 
Sorry, I'm just having a moment. I'll start, I'll start that again, shall I? Yeah, 25 years since the Royal Air Force has helped liberate Ku- Ku- Kuwait from Saddam Hussein's forces, an RAF Tornado GR4 has been painted in the iconic Gulf War Desert pink paint scheme to honour the aircraft type. Almost continuous operational service since then. On the 28th of February, the 25th anniversary of Saddam's forces' withdrawal from Kuwait, the uh, aircraft is planned to stage a flypast at the National Arboretum at an event honouring the British forces involved in the Gulf War. The Desert Pink Tornado, number Zulu Gulf 750, is based at RAF Lossimouth with the, uh, is it um, is it 15 Squadron, I think? Yeah, 15R Squadron, uh, which saw active service during Operation Gan- Granby, the UK's codename for the Gulf War. The aircraft carries 11 battle honours on its tail, recalling the tornado's almost continuous service from operations worldwide since 1991. Air Marshal Sir Stephen Hillier, that's a fabulous name, it's Sir Stephen Hillier. Sir Stephen Hillier. (laughs) Chief of the Air Staff Designate uh, said, Having flown the tornado on operations, it is wonderful to see this aircraft in a paint scheme marking 25 years of almost constant deployed operations for the tornado force. It has consistently been at the forefront of the RAF's attack capability and continues to make an enormous contribution today on operations in the Middle East against Daesh uh, operating alongside the Typhoon and will continue to do so until its planned exit from service. I look forward to my time as the next chief in the air staff. Uh, oh, sorry, next chief of the air staff. That's <laughs> sorry, it's been a long morning. He's overcome by the he's, over, he's just overcome by the I, fact we're in a Vulcan. That's I know, what it is. Absolutely, a, a brilliant story, really. And there is um, there's some fantastic. Uh, unfortunately, I can't show you the pictures because uh, uh, that was one technical step too far for me this morning. But uh, yes, it's uh, fantastic in the desert pink. It's sort of like a sandy colour, isn't it? I think is what they mean. Yeah, and they've, they've um, got that. Um, they've, they've painted on the front end of the yeah. uh, of the jet that kind of teeth, it. Uh, shark yes. teeth. <laughs> looks rather menacing. It certainly does, absolutely. But uh, yes, no, that's it. Well, th- that is the end of the military, military segment. segment yes. So all we have left to do then is we've got some fabulous listener feedback we have played for you now, and then it's time to wrap up. So uh, f- if you have sent us in, if you've been kind enough to send us some voice feedback, we're going to play that out for you right now. Hey Carlos and Matt, it's the old Dot Pilot here. I've managed to steal the mic from the old curmudgeon to send you this little message. What a fabulous milestone to reach your 100th show, and to do so in such style aboard the flying Flatiron. You guys have always inspired me with the professionalism and effort that you've put into your shows. They are great to listen to, and even better to watch live. An excellent source of aviation news, knowledge and opinion. You continually impress and I have no doubt that you will move on to greater things in the next hundred shows. So congratulations on getting your telegram from Her Majesty and I wish you well for the future. By the way, be careful how you get out of that thing. It's a long way down. Hello Matt and Carlos. This is David Abbey in... New York, USA, and want to say congratulations on 100 episodes. 
I look forward to your podcast each week and your banter and your guests and learn a lot from you guys and from the other great podcasts like APG and the Airplane Geeks. And I love how you mention them a lot and have sometimes have some of uh, their guests, um, their hosts on your show. It's really, really good. So thanks a lot for your continued effort, entertainment, education, and uh, Pilot Pip is a great asset to your show as well. I enjoy his uh, podcast as well. So looking forward to that great podcast from the Vulcan. Have a great day and looking forward to 100 more. Take care, guys. Hello, Carlos and Matt. It's Glenn Towler here from New Zealand. Congratulations on your 100th episode. Here's to another another 100 episodes. Always a big joy listening to you guys and try and get in the chat room whenever I possibly can. And uh, hopefully you really enjoy your uh, tour of the Vulcan. Anyway, keep up the good work. Cheers. Hello, Carlos. Hello, Matt. This is Jenny in Rome. I wanted to congratulate you on reaching your 100th podcast and to thank you for all the fun and games and enjoyment that you and your guests provide for us listeners. Hello, Carlos, Matt, Simon and Pilot Pip. It's Ray from Down Under here. I just wanted to take this opportunity in wishing you all a happy 100th show and congratulations on reaching this massive and epic achievement. And I hope that there will be a hundred many more episodes like it. Take care, all the best, and catch you all on the flip side. Hello, Carlos and Matt. This is Schuerbacher from the Netherlands. I'd like to congratulate you guys on number 100. That's no small feat. Thank you very much for all the podcasts, and uh, I hope there are still many to come. Bye-bye. Uh, good evening, Matt and Carlos. My name is uh, is Will. I've been listening to your show for a while now. Um, I found you after listening to the APG. Um, searched for more aviation-based podcasts and uh, really enjoyed what I found when I came across yours. Uh, congratulations on 100 episodes. Uh, really good achievement. The show is really good, really well put together. Great format, really polished. Um and I just just really enjoy listening to you on a, on a Monday morning and when I get to work. Just a, a little story about about my interest in aviation, how I came to to look for these sort of podcasts and, and get involved. And basically, it stemmed from uh, this time last year, pretty much to the day. Um, my wife and I went across to Asia and did a little tour of Thailand and Cambodia. Prior to that, perhaps this, this will uh, revolve you a little bit here, Matt, in in sense of I had a fear of flying. I'm um, quite a strong one. I've had it for as long as I can remember. I've always travelled and never let it stop me going on holiday because, well, I like holidays, so it never stopped me going, but um, it was a real problem and uh, the idea of being sat on a plane for 12 to 13 hours all the way to Thailand to Bangkok from London Heathrow was a real, real nightmare for me because that's become a bit of a problem. Uh, luckily, a family member of mine is a, uh, well, she's involved in um, in, in psychiatry and um, um, biochemistry and, and she had a bit of a chat with me and we decided we would do our way to, to conquer this fear of flying to cut a long story short we talked about a few things and we found a book an audio book about the fear of flying by a, a pilot captain um, and basically read 
and listened to the book, um, but not just once, listened to it a couple of times um, while I was at work, pretty similar to what I do when I listen to the podcast. Um, just went over it a few times and, and understood and then basically researched more about flying and, and started to understand more about flying. And the more, un- more I understood, the um, the better it was really and the, the, the more I, I became interested in it. Um, so much so that when we actually got to go to Thailand, we flew on a 777 with BA. I thought it was really interesting when we got onto the plane and all the sounds and different things that I'd heard. I knew what was going on and, and the fear really wasn't there. And uh, it was a real pleasure in the end. And while I you know, didn't have to get uh, totally drunk to manage to stay on the plane, although I did met the most of the complimentary wines i really enjoyed the flight and ever since i've been really interested in flying and really got into it and become a bit of a plane geek really so you know just a little story there about how i came into flying and since then i've taken on private pilot lessons and uh, i'm only a few in my main interest is in commercial aviation really i, I do like like aircraft and things but um it's just a massive step if i would have told myself this time last year that i would have gone and taken private lessons and well nobody in my family would have ever believed that and uh, I flew on my own for the first time ever I'm 30 and I flew up to Dubai to see my wife and my mother-in-law lives there on a 318 it was a real pleasure and it's just you know a real great experience that I'm I think everyone should uh, enjoy and take part in this and if anyone is out there um who has a fear of flying and you know please just educate yourself because you know this is a really safe form of transport and it's an absolute privilege and an absolute honor to be able to fly uh, as easily as we can as cheap as we can you know if it's short haul hopping on the 737 and things like that so that's a little bit more me uh, keep up the good work congratulations once again um, enjoy your time on the Vulcan we went to see it last year when it came up north I'm from Hull so it was uh, it did a little flyover of the Humber Bridge and then it did a part of the uh, airshow at Cleethorpes and it was a fantastic um, bit of machinery um, and it would be greatly missed so enjoy your time there, enjoy the rest of the show and thanks again Hi Carlos and Matt, it's Captain Al here, just a very quick message to say congratulations on achieving episode 100 fantastic work, the show just gets better and better have a great day today Cheerio! Congratulations, Matt and Carlos, the hosts of the awesome podcast, Plane Talking UK. This is Captain Jeff from the Airline Pilot Guy Show, and I have my co-host here with me as well, and we're here to congratulate you on uh, this momentous occasion, your 100th episode anniversary. Yay! Applause. Yay. Yay, awesome. It's so uh it's so great to see that you've made it to this milestone. I mean, 100 episodes. I mean, that is killing it. So, we just wanted to send this in to let you know that we love you. We love both of you and we love your show and we can't wait to see you guys in London in July. That is quite quite true. Miami Rick here from Miami, standing right outside a 767 simulator at the Pan Am Flight Academy. I've got two students looking at me like I'm crazy, but this is momentous enough for me to uh, stop the sim session and wish both of you, you know, my deepest deepest congratulations on episode 100, and hopefully 10,000, 20,000, 50, 100,000 more episodes to come. We are really really looking forward to meeting you at at Farnborough. Farnborough. And uh, yeah, so congratulations and keep them coming. 
And hey, Pat and Carlos, Dr. Steph here. Uh, Also wanted to join in and wish you guys congratulations on your 100th episode. As the guys before me said, no small feat in getting to that many episodes. And congratulations on all your hard work and accomplishment there. Keep the episodes coming. And I second Jeff and Rick's sentiments about seeing you guys in Farnborough in just a couple of months. And uh, this is uh, the old Doc Pilot here. And it was such an honor being on your show, guys. And uh, to think now you're sitting up in the cockpit of that ancient old Vulcan uh, aircraft which once used to carry uh, blue steel nuclear missiles. And uh, my very first flight commander on Phantoms, he used to be a navigator on one of those. And it was his job when they went on to alert to carry the lead bucket which held the ball bearings, which maintained the nuclear sphere of that amazing missile uh, intact. So they were ready to go and launch it at somebody. I can't remember who now. Anyway, congratulations on sitting on board that amazing nuclear bomber for your 100th show. Fantastic. Marvellous, guys. So I think we'd all like to sing you a little song from uh, the APG crew. And I'm going to kick it off with... Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. And many more. And that was just horrible, but we did our best. <laughs> and I'm still sick, so you can't. I, Sing to save my life there. My fault. And so. now they're really looking at me like I'm crazy. You are crazy. Well, hey, we're all we're all crazy aviation people. So again, thanks again, uh, Carlos and Matt, for such a fantastic program, and uh, we look forward to seeing you in July. God bless. Absolutely, guys. God bless. Woohoo! Take care. Would you believe it, Matt? I'm standing outside a Vulcan wearing a pair of gloves like it's winter time. <laughs> that, that would be because it is actually winter time. Oh, is it still winter time? Yeah. So that's it. That's where we're going to wrap up uh, this uh, 100th episode, our iconic 100th episode, standing uh, right underneath here, XM612 at the City of Norwich Aviation Museum. How, how's it been for you, Matt, apart from the stress? <laughs> it's been a little bit stressful, and I, I know I look like a moron, but this is the only way if I know we're still on air or not, so that's why. Uh, the wind has not helped us, it has to be said, and it, the, the staff here at the museum have been so incredibly patient because it is freezing. It's absolutely freezing out here. In fact, it's just starting to snow here in Norwich. Uh, <laughs> So it's, it's not great, but it has been an absolutely epic 100th episode. As I say, and thanks to the museum staff for making it so, so special. Uh, we can just see, well, just from where we are, we've got a few listeners who are all here. Yeah, we've got some our UK there. listeners they're all behind the camera. <laughs> absolutely. So we come on, guys, come and say come, hello. Come and say hello. Come, on, come and say hello before we, uh, before we come out. Just as a piper just takes off uh, behind us there. So you can uh, give yourself a wave on the camera there. Uh, have you enjoyed yourself? Yeah, it's been awesome. Absolutely brilliant. Oh, good, good, good. You, you braved the cold to come and see us today. Uh, somehow. It's been absolutely freezing, but it's not too bad. I hope it wasn't too cold up in the cockpit. But no, no, it's been good. I've it's been good. fine. It's been lovely. <laughs> I've been up there all day. It's been lovely. And you've been, you've been exceedingly brave as well. Yeah, definitely. He said he was going to drag me out here, but I actually quite enjoy stuff like this, so it's fine. Oh, 
good, good, good. Can I borrow for the weekend? <laughs> just, just, just for aviation purposes, obviously. <laughs> but thank you guys for coming today. It's been great to see you here. Also, Paul, Paul Trigger's been here as well. But Paul's disappeared. I don't know where Paul's gone. He's somewhere here. Oh, the UK listener. But no, we want to say a massive, massive thank you to the City of Norwich Aviation Museum here in the chilly uh, Norfolk uh, area of the UK. So from me and Matt, and don't forget Stuart as well. Give us a little wave, Stuart. He's been our he's been our tech technical uh, help today behind the camera. And thanks to everyone at the museum again. Uh, so from me and Matt, it's a massive uh, thank you and goodbye to everyone. Oh, oh, the cake. Oh, we've got a cake. We're not getting the cake. Hold on. Matt's going to get the cake. We have got a cake that was baked for us by uh, Mama Smith. Matt's got it here. We're going to just have a look at the cake. We're not going to light any candles because uh, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be brilliant. Yeah, he's nearly dropping it there. We, we've got the cake there baked for us. <laughs> there we go. We're going to cut that in a moment. Probably the knife will break because it's so cold. But we're, we're going to cut. We're cut the cake. It's, it's fine. The lid's gone for a burden there. As you can see, it is windy here. But we. <laughs> so, but that is it for everyone in the chat room who's still listening in the chat room. That the chat room's upstairs in the on the flight deck, so we can't get anywhere near it. But to everyone who's joined us in the chat room this morning, a massive, massive, massive thank you. So that's it then, bringing episode 100 to a close of the Plain Talking UK podcast. From me, Carlos, goodbye. From you, Matt, goodbye. And from you guys, goodbye. goodbye. Bye.